why would the Magi give Jesus frankincense? Like, what does this mean? Because just logically speaking, like priests and Magi, they don't give incense to gods, they burn it to help connect people to the gods. And so this is what I think, right? And, and this, is, this is what actually many people believe throughout history, different theologians and things, is that, is that in giving frankincense to Jesus and bowing down before him, the Magi are communicating that Jesus is the priest here in this room, not them. Even though he's the baby, like this frankincense belongs to him. He's the priest. They're really acknowledging their limitations where they come up short and that Jesus is the one to look to. Jesus is the divine go-between. The one that's required for humans to connect to God. The one who is to bridge the natural and the supernatural. This is what they're really acknowledging here. Like, like and we miss this or maybe don't fully understand. What is frankincense? What is that even about? They're, they're coming here and they're acknowledging, they're laying down what was theirs that would, that would really assist them in their own duties and responsibilities as priests, as spiritual people, as go-betweens. And they're saying Jesus is the one. Hey, we're continuing on in our Christmas series. Uh, anybody ready for Christmas? Come on. Come on now, right? Um, it, you know, this week we had some warm weather. It didn't feel like December yesterday. I was like, okay, I see you sneaking up on me, you know? So um, we're continuing on in our Christmas series called The Three Gifts of Christmas, where we are taking time to really examine the three famous gifts that the wise men or the magi brought to Jesus after his birth uh, with the specific intent to really learn why they gave these gifts, you know? What is the significance of giving baby Jesus gold, frankincense, and myrrh? What do these gifts tell us about who Jesus is? What do these gifts tell us about the kind of relationship he wants to have with us? What, is, what was the significance of these gifts back then in the ancient Near East, and, and what is their significance to us now? And I want us to look at those, and last week we obviously looked at the gift of gold and um, how this reveals to us that, uh, that he is king. And uh, so I want us to kind of continue to push into this direction. Um, and uh, as we get started, I'd like to invite you just to travel uh, back to junior high with me for a few minutes. Now, I know you're excited. Um, and specifically back to that time in your life when uh, note passing and lovesick crushes dominated your emotional existence. Are you guys, you guys good? Right? Let's go back there for a minute, Okay. Um, everybody, I think I just felt the collective nausea in the room sort of tear through the roof. I think I, think, I, think I just felt that. So, um, all right, we're not going to be there long, but let's travel back to junior high. Anybody remember having like a, a, a pretty good-sized crush in junior high, right? I mean, like significant crush. And, and if you remember back to then, you'll remember how like talking to that person face-to-face about those feelings just was not an option. Like wasn't going to happen, right? Way too intimidating, you know, like, what would you actually say to them? You know, like, uh, how embarrassing would it be? What would their friends think? You know, if you got rejected, what if the whole school found out? I mean, just a whole bunch of stuff. And so fortunately, you may remember that there was a workaround to this problem where you could still communicate with your crush either through passing a note or through another person who would act maybe as your proxy, right, as your mail courier, you know, as your go-between, who would pass information back and forth between these two sort of lovesick junior hires uh, who were too scared to talk to each other face-to-face. You guys remember that? Yeah, right, right, everybody, everybody, right? Um, you know, the notes, circle yes or circle no or whatever, whatever the case. Just, 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 just crazy. A time long ago, a time we've all, you know, uh, wanted to forget, you know, just, just unbelievable, um, but you know, having that go-between was kind of necessary, if you, especially if you were a guy uh, who was, you know, 12 and your voice was cracking, and you're like, I don't, I don't know how, what to say to her. I just know she's cute. And, um, and, and so this is a time, like, we're all trying to forget, a time without cell phones. And if you actually wanted to call up a girl and talk to her, you know, you had to, you had to get, get past her dad answering the phone first, like, um, which, you know, I wasn't going to talk, you know, talk to the dad, so it's just hang up, you know, like, like whoop. And then you call back a few minutes later hoping that she's the one to pick up the phone. And nope, it's still him. Got to hang up again, you know, until he, until he finally, you know, calls your house and asks to speak to your dad because apparently your phone number keeps popping up on his caller ID, you know. Um, man, that was a really specific example. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know about that. Um, 
Crazy, time long ago, you know, no cell phones, no internet, no social media, none of that stuff. Um, all of these sort of obstacles to our early teenage love stories. And if you were entered back to junior high, you might remember like, like these challenges. You might remember just like all the nerves, not knowing how to talk to them. You might remember just like, how do you even communicate outside of school? So you go on like Christmas break and you're like, hey, I'll see you next year, you know, like, and, and no ability to communicate what, whatsoever. And the assumption, you know, I think a lot of us might have had, I think some junior hires had back then was that when you would eventually become old enough to drive and make your own money, then you would, there would no longer be any obstacles to your love. Then this love could just sort of flourish, right? But then, you know, the problem is like we all get older and we realize how ridiculous that is because the older you get, you learn this, that the biggest obstacles to closeness aren't finances or transportation, they're mental and emotional. Because feeling disconnected is more about comfortability than proximity. You can throw that, throw that up there. Um, right? Feeling disconnected is more about comfortability than proximity. And most of us already know this to be true because most of us have been in a situation where we were physically close to someone and it felt like they were a million miles away. You know what I'm talking about? Like, like you couldn't have felt more disconnected or distanced from them within yourself. And it's this, this sort of weird phenomenon where when we're younger, we think that if we could only overcome these hurdles of money and transportation and locale, that everything's going to be so much easier. And then we get older, and you're like, you remove those obstacles, and you actually do get closer. Proximity does open up. And it creates a new set of problems, giving us much easier access to the dysfunction of that other person. It's like, hey, now that I, now that I know more about you, I, I kind of I want to keep you in that sort of false image uh, and dream scenario I had in my mind. Now that we're actually communicating, I, I don't know that we're a great match. You know what I mean? Um, and that's, that's kind of how, how it goes for a lot of us. And I don't know if you've ever, ever experienced this phenomenon where you can, be, you can be right next to somebody and feel a million miles away. And I think that this is something that people feel no matter like, like how young they are and no matter how old they get. We all understand what it's like to, to be uh, physically next to somebody or close in proximity to them and yet feel so far away. And if you've ever felt this, maybe you've had the courage to ask a question like this. Hey, is there something going on between us? Is there something going on between us? which is essentially communicating that, you know, hey, man, something feels off, right? That you're feeling distance between you and them, that there's this invisible obstacle to your friendship or your marriage or your connection of some sort. And, you know, maybe it was something that they said or maybe it was something that you did. And maybe it was, it was this, like, missed expectation or a bad assumption or a misunderstanding of some sort and here's what so many of us, I think, have found out over the years, navigating relationships, it's this, is that sometimes we can repair our relational problems ourselves, but often we need outside help. Often we need someone else. Often, like on the playground in junior high, you need someone to run across and ask, uh, hey, what's going on? Like, uh, can, I, can I bring a message back? Uh, you know, but we need this our entire life. Like, like no matter how advanced or developed our relationships become, often we need outside help. You think about when you were a kid and, and you occasionally needed a parent to step in and break up a fight between you and your sibling and negotiate terms and determine whose turn it actually was to sit in the front seat. You know, we're talking big, big issues here, big problems, right? Um, if, you, if you remember ever getting into a fight with like your best friend, and all of a sudden you're like way disconnected and, and sometimes you needed like your parent to call their parent to help figure out what is going on here. Or maybe as a couple, sometimes you've needed the help of like a small group of friends or a counselor or a therapist to hear out the situation and help you get through your conflict. If you're a person in business, you know, uh, maybe you've had these intense moments where like big money and legalities are on the line and so you've had to get a mediator or an arbitrator to sort of step in and help you come to an agreement. And I think maybe perhaps, like, like the example most of us all can relate to is, you know, when it comes to the everyday annoyances where we're like on our way home from work or whatever, we just have something go on and we pick up the phone and we got to call somebody and say, hey, is it, is it them or is it me? Like, I, I don't know. I need you to tell me what is going on. You got to help me. Again, showing the need for an outside 
perspective, right? Some outside help. And what, I, what I've learned, and I think is true, I think most people would agree with is this, is that the more unapproachable a person seems to you, or the more high stakes the relationship feels to you, the more likely you are to need help navigating those interactions well. You know? Like, there's a lot on the line here. Like, I, I don't know how to, like, get through this. I don't just want to, like, 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 throw a grenade and see the whole thing blow up, and so I'm not exactly sure how to sidestep some of these landmines and I bring this up because, because I, think, I think that for most people, there is no one who feels maybe more unapproachable than the creator and the sustainer of the universe, you know? Like, could there be a title for someone that is more unrelatable than this one? The creator and the sustainer of the universe. How do you, how do you relate to that? How do, you, how do you even approach that? I'd also say that there's no other relationship that feels more high stakes than our relationship with God because that relationship going well has implications on the amount of satisfaction and fulfillment we have in this life, and also what happens to us in the next life. I, I, I mean, that's about as high stakes as you can get. Would you agree? And then to even make it more complicated, when there, when there is a rift between us and God, we got to admit it's kind of our fault because God is perfect and you and I are not. You know, newsflash. And so people have always kind of struggled with this, you know? I think, I think that, that from the beginning of time, really, since, you know, post the garden, like, I think people have always struggled when there's become an obvious rift between them and God, not sure how to handle this, looking for outside help to kind of fix the problem, and, and so I, I would say this, that oftentimes throughout history, when people have detected a rift or disconnection between themselves and the divine, they've had the same impulse as in any other relationship to seek out a go-between to help them fix what has become broken. You know, to help them figure out what's off, what they need to do, what's, what's missing, you know, how, how, do I, how do I fix this? And historically, this has always really been the case for people. In fact, if you look back through tribal cultures that precede our modern culture, this go-between becomes the role of like a medicine man or a shaman or, or a priest and even one that may surprise you, a magi who held a very similar role and a very similar sort of purpose. And I tell you that because maybe for you, thinking of it this way can help you, you know, sort of change the way you see the birth of Jesus, this story that unfolds in the, the, the gospel of Matthew. And I want to kind of continue to push into this story again uh, today. We know that the Magi are significant characters in this story. They come from a long way off. Uh, but who were, who were they? They're kind of mysterious, well, they were known to be people who were very, very devoted to their gods. They performed all sorts of prayers and sacrifices and rites and rituals. They were often relied upon to interpret dreams or to predict the future. In fact, here's, here's a good way to understand the Magi. The Magi were thought to have this ability to bridge the natural with the supernatural. Okay, so they were very, very spiritual people. You, could, you can kind of think like, like sorcerers or, or um, astrologers, um, uh, ones very much involved in like divination and, and all kinds of different practices that were spiritual in nature, but, but, but really counterfeit and pagan. Um, but they were, they, they were thought to have this, this divine ability where they would be the connector between the natural world and the supernatural. And we talked last week about how Daniel... Uh, was someone who was actually considered to be a magi because as he's in exile in Babylon, he's called upon to interpret dreams as a wise person. And when he did that, he very much was bridging the natural world with the supernatural. It's really the role. And so this is a lot of what the magi were utilized for this time in, in history. In fact, um, let me say it like this. The magi were considered to be divine go-betweens because, uh, because God or... Uh, gods, depending on, um, you know, kind of, kind of the situation there, weren't directly accessible to the people. So depending on the tradition, a magi or a priest was needed to mediate all interactions with the divine. And so these, these magi, right, these, these, these spiritual people, they would operate in sacred, sacred uh, spaces, which, you know, we look at and maybe we would call a temple or a church or some spiritual building of some sort. They would utter sacred sounds, which we would call maybe worship music or, or liturgy of some kind. They would also burn 
um, sacred smells. They would surround themselves with sacred smells, which would have been like burning incense. And one of the most, one of the most prominent types of incense in ancient history was frankincense. And they would often burn this to really set the stage for God to come, to prepare the environment in the room to come. And in fact, if you look back through the halls of history, frankincense was used for all sorts of religious ceremonies in places like Babylon and Egypt and Rome and Greece and even, even China, ancient, uh, um, you know, ancient societies, ancient places all used frankincense. Frankincense is something that was rare and very expensive, um, sometimes even used as a currency, and the only people who really had access to it were priests and kings. Uh, it was not, not really an essential oil back then, uh, where everyone had access to it, uh, priests and kings uh, set aside just for them. In fact, there were, um, that even now there are some Eastern Orthodox and Catholic churches that still use frankincense in different rituals and liturgy. In fact, let me just show you this, this picture of this priest um, uh, burning uh, some frankincense, letting, letting it fill the, the room uh, to affect the, uh, the smell and the atmosphere and throughout much of history, frankincense was really burned as an incense in like a temple or a cathedral or a religious place as a way really to kind of shield the priest from the direct uh, exposure to the presence of God. It was kind of like a thing that went before them, right, to separate them so they weren't like too close to it. It was also used for a lot of the same reasons back then that it is now. It was used to bless a place or an object, and then also to set the stage for something sacred. So this was like, this was like the, the thing that would go before them to help create the moment and the time and the setting for the divine to show up. And it was used in many different kind of faiths, many different types of religions. It was a way to kind of, kind of, kind of help people focus on God. And so this kind of brings up an interesting question because you know, if you're living in the ancient world and you're one of these you know, magi, how can you ever know where God is or where these divine interactions are supposed to take place? Like, how do you really figure this out? Well, many people in the ancient world believed that looking to the cosmos was how you would know where God was and what he was up to, right? They believed that God would give them very specific meteorological or astrological signs. Now, try saying those again. Like, like <laughs> I practiced those a couple times. Um, so in other words, if you wanted to know what God was up to, uh, people believe that you would just look to the sky, right? You would look up and you'd pay close attention to the weather and the stars. And these people believed that, what these people believed was that our fate and specifically um, the fate of really important and, power, and powerful people and nations was divinely written in the stars. So they, they had all of these kinds of beliefs about this. And, and this kind of explains why when the Magi enter into the story, the first thing they say is this in Matthew chapter 2, verse 2. They say, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We, look, we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now, remember, these are magi, and these are people who stay very close to powerful people. Right? They are like, like at the right hand of a ruler to help them interpret events and moments, to help them understand what God is doing or what the gods are saying, tasked with the responsibility to bridge the natural with the supernatural. And so... The Magi study the stars. They would chart history by the stars. And one day, right, they see this new star and they believe it signifies that a new ruler has been born. And so they've come to inquire about it. So it's a very fascinating story. Now, there is some additional context. I, I don't want to nerd out too much, but I, I think it's pretty fascinating. Uh, and I want to jump into it just for a minute because... Um, you know, most of those people living in the first century would have already known the context I'm going to share with you. But for us, you know, unless you, you like really like, you know, this kind, of, this kind of history and getting into like early Roman Empire stuff, like you're probably not going to know it um, because it's just, it's just not really understood when you read uh, the Bible, all of the backstory and what is, is going on. And so let me give you some of this. The region of Judea in southern Israel where the story takes place, it was ruled by Rome. It was occupied by Rome, Okay. Um, and Rome was ruled and governed throughout much of its history by the many different Caesars. So during the time of Jesus' birth, we hear in Matthew 2 that Caesar Augustus was in power. He had taken over for his very famous father, Julius Caesar, who you may 
Noah was uh, assassinated. And so the story goes that just before Julius Caesar's death, there was an enormous star that appeared in the sky. Some believe this to be a comet of some sort. And so when, C when Julius Caesar uh, does die, um, shortly after the, the appearance of this star, people begin to interpret the appearance of the star to mean that it had appeared to transport Julius Caesar from earth into the heavens, where he would be able to continue ruling from this sort of divine vantage point, looking down on earth from a higher throne. <laughs> they believed that this was Julius Caesar's sort of ascension moment from being a king to becoming a god. Are you with me? So shortly after this happens, right, the big star appears for, for Julius Caesar. Shortly after all this happens, his son Caesar Augustus takes over. And he would be empowered during the time of Jesus. And because people believed that his dad, Julius Caesar, had become a god, Augustus started to give himself the nickname, the Son of God. You heard that, you heard that anywhere? Yeah. So at the time of Jesus' birth, there were, there were literally temples all throughout the Roman Empire dedicated to Julius Caesar, with each of these temples prominently displaying the star of Caesar. This star would have been like sculpted and painted and carved onto the inside and the outside of these temples, and people would come from literally all over, and they would worship and they would pray and they would sacrifice to Caesar and his star. In fact, let me show you this next picture. This is a, a coin uh, from the Roman Empire in the first century. On one side over here is the, kind of the side profile of Caesar Augustus. You can kind of see the, the letters there. Uh, it, it's it's uh, part of the coin has been uh, uh, lost. But uh, Caesar Augustus. And on the back side is the star. The back side of this coin is Julius Caesar's star with this inscription that means divine Julius. Divine Julius, meaning Caesar is Lord. Or Julius is God. Now I tell you all that backstory to help you understand some things. That, that by placing, look at this, that by placing at the center of Jesus' birth story a, a star, Matthew is indicating that his message is both political and theological in nature. Okay? Putting this star there in the middle of this story of Jesus' birth, it means more to those people back then than maybe we understand now just when we read it. They're going, hold on, a star? Because Matthew's communicating two things here that would have been highly offensive. They would have been scandalous even for people during this time in history. And so by carefully weaving all of this detail into the account of Jesus' birth, Matthew's essentially saying this if you're taking notes, that not only is Jesus a better king than Herod, he's also a better God than Caesar. Not only is he a better king than Herod, which we learned about last week, he's also a better God than Caesar. And so are you starting to get a picture of why there were people interested in killing Jesus? Right? There's some big, bold claims here that threaten a lot of really powerful people. So in Matthew's telling of the Christmas story, the Magi, we hear they follow this star from the east. They go to Jerusalem first. They stop. They speak to Herod. And then they move on to Bethlehem where they eventually find Jesus. And it says in verse 11 that on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of frankincense and of myrrh. I think we have that slide. Right? So based on what we now know, based on what we now know, what we've talked about, what we've already been looking at here this morning already, why would the Magi give Jesus frankincense? Like, what does this mean? Because just logically speaking, like priests and Magi, they don't give incense to gods. They burn it to help connect people to the gods. And so this is what I think, right? And, and this, is, this is what actually many people believe throughout history, different theologians and things, is that, is that in giving frankincense to Jesus and bowing down before him, the Magi are communicating that Jesus is the priest here in this room, not them. Even though he's the baby, like this frankincense belongs to him. He's the priests, they're really acknowledging their limitations where they come up short and that Jesus is the one to look to. 
They're acknowledging this, this big thought, again, if you're taking notes, that Jesus is the divine go-between. The one that's required for humans to connect to God, the one who is to bridge the natural and the supernatural. This is what they're really acknowledging here. Like, like and we miss this or maybe don't fully understand, what is frankincense? What is that even about? They're, they're coming here and they're acknowledging, they're laying down what was theirs that would, that would really assist them in their own duties and responsibilities as priests, as spiritual people, as go-betweens, and they're saying Jesus is the one. This is the one. And what's interesting is that by the time you get to the rest of the New Testament, you find all these other verses that are written by these early Christians indicating that this is how they saw Jesus too. Right? The author of Hebrews in Hebrews 4 verse 14 says this. He says, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. And then verse 16, let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Now these are fascinating verses where the author of Hebrews is acknowledging that Jesus has stepped in and fulfilled the role in our life as our great high priest. I mean, it's interesting. We try to look at what this means because, you know, not only at this time in history did, did people view God as sort of untouchable and unrelatable, but, but people in many ways viewed priests the same way. You know, like because in an effort to really set themselves apart and make themselves holy so they connect with, connect, connect with God, the priests really lived these sort of detached disconnected lives from everyday people, including when it came to their struggles and their different experiences. So, you know, there were all of these, these like ritualistic obstacles you had to go through in order to speak to a priest, especially a high priest. In fact, you, you would probably never get an audience with a high priest. They were, just, they were just too holy. They were too separated from everyday people. You know, the risk of con contamination was too great, so they stayed very secluded in a way. And so back then, you know, many people may have trusted priests to talk to God for them, but they certainly never considered the priests as people who could relate to them and what they're going through. And here in Hebrews 4, what we find out is that these verses are saying something very, very, very profound that begins way back at the birth of Jesus. And that is this big thought right here, that Jesus is both, both the God we are desperate to connect to and the priestly go-between who is doing the connecting. He's both. By fulfilling both of these roles, Jesus cuts out the middleman that all of us instinctively leverage to navigate complicated high-stakes relationships. He cuts out the middleman. He says, he says, okay, you need a priest to access God. You need a priest to get to me. All right, I'll be the priest and I'll be God. And you can just come through me. What's unique about this priest Jesus is that he's relatable, right? He's touchable, he's approachable, he, he's understanding in a way that all other spiritual go-betweens are not. Which, which is like really important that we understand this because, because instead of holding everyone at arm's length, what we see is that Jesus, you know, removes every obstacle so that he can be close to us. This is, this is like what, he, what he's up to and this reality is emphasized when the Magi come into the presence of a very young Jesus and you notice that he's not in a temple, right? He's not in a religious building of any sort. He's not insulated by gates and guards. Rather, they find Jesus in a very, very, very humble place, and they bow down and they worship him there, giving frankincense as a way of saying this, if you're taking notes. We don't need this substance to summon you. You're already here. You're already here. And by presenting it to him in this moment, they, you know what happens is they convert this very sort of calm and humble place into a holy and sacred place. That, that, that place where they, where they come and they, and they meet Jesus, it's not a temple. It's not a synagogue. It's not a church. It's not a holy place that's set apart. But what happens in that moment as they bow down and they worship him, they, they've converted that place into something holy. And I bring all of this up because I think it brings up a, a, an important question that we have to kind of wrestle with this morning. And, and that is, what if, what if that is still possible? 
You know, like, like what if this was a big part of what Jesus was born to do, to help us convert common everyday places into holy places? Like, what if you don't have to do all of the stuff to conjure up a sacred connection with God? You know, what, what if instead of waiting in isolation and desperation, hoping you can do all the right things needed to connect with God, what if instead he pushes away all of the obstacles and he comes and finds you? And what if all you have to do is open up your eyes and acknowledge that God is already here? And what if he doesn't expect you to jump through all of these hoops or do all of these rituals the right way or wear the right thing or go to the right place or burn the right incense? Look at this question. What if God is so set on being near you that he removes every single obstacle in the space between you and him? Like, what if he's so interested in being closely connected in a relationship with you that he, he's actually willing to come down to earth, be born as a human, so that he can be with you face-to-face, person-to-person, without any sort of mediator? Like, what if that is the story of Christmas? In fact, this is essentially the, the, the meta-narrative meta of the Bible. When you think about, like, this, the, the big themes throughout Scripture I mean, one of the primary meta-narratives we have in Scripture is this phrase, God with us. And you see it in the book of Genesis, right? You see it in the garden where God is walking in the cool of the day. He is with Adam. His desires to be with them. And, and we see the, uh, sin come in and really sever that relationship where God could no longer be with them, but God doesn't give up. He's trying to figure out, okay, what, what can we do now? And we see in the Old Testament, we see him in, uh, with the people in the wilderness, through the tabernacle, the very presence of God being with the people. We see the, the pillar of fire by day and the cloud of smoke, I'm sorry, the cloud of smoke by day and the uh, pillar of fire by night, the presence of God going before his people. And then we see the temple finally be constructed under Solomon and the very presence of God residing and living within the holy of holies in that temple. I mean, I mean right there in the center of his people is God's presence. I mean, in all of the Bible is about this idea of God with us. And then you get to the Christmas story and we see God, God actually come in human flesh in Matthew chapter 2. Not enough for just his presence to be housed in a structure that you have to travel to. He comes and he puts on flesh and he comes down and he walks amongst his people, God with us. Touching people that no one would touch, healing people that no one would have time for, giving life and speaking destiny over people who were outcasts and forgotten. And then, and then he goes to the cross and he dies, right? He dies a very tragic and brutal death only to conquer death, hell, and the grave, to ascend into heaven and to tell his disciples that it's better for him to go so that, so that something better can come, which is the Holy Spirit. And we read all through the New Testament about the power of the Holy Spirit in us, God with us. Look, the entire Bible from cover to cover, the full sweep, Genesis to Revelation, is a, is a story of God wanting to be with us. You got to know that, that when you read stories in the Old Testament, you can't understand. That story fits within a broader, bigger meta-narrative of the love of God to remove and tear down every obstacle that keeps us from him. And I think that one of the most inspiring things about the Christmas story is that in, in, in this place, right, that everyone had dismissed was, you know, this very common place was the place where God actually was. No one would have expected to find God there. And I just, I just began to wonder, you know, are there places with God that we assume he can't or never would be? God would never be here. This isn't church. Which makes me think of an Old Testament story of the Jewish patriarch and prophet Moses. This is a story in his life before he would rise up as the deliverer of God's people and lead them out of slavery in Egypt. He is actually um, in a far off land and um, he is working for his father-in-law and he is tending to the sheep one day when he, he looks over and he notices that there is a bush that is caught on fire, but it's not being consumed. In other words, it's on fire, but it's not burning up. And, uh, you know, I, I'm sure he had to, like, rub his eyes and squint and be like, what am I seeing right now? 
Um, and I don't know if they had like LSD back then, but I'm sure there was, I, I mean, it would have made more sense like in the 60s or 70s to see something like this. But uh, I mean, Moses has to be like, what in the world is going on? And his curiosity must have gotten the better of him. So he walks towards this bush. Um, and when he gets near the bush, the voice of God begins to speak to him from the bush. Um, and, and this is what he hears in, in Exodus 3, verse 5. God says, don't come any closer. Take off your sandals for the place where you're standing is holy ground. Now, it's a very famous story, right? And there's a lot of different sermons preached on this verse and all that and a lot of different applications and points people can make from this verse. But to me, what stands out is that Moses is not in a temple. Moses is not in like a holy place. He's not at the tabernacle. Moses is dirty and he is sweaty. He's not presentable in any way. The environment doesn't smell like sweet, beautiful incense in any sort of way. It actually smells like sweaty men and sheep. Uh, and nothing about this scenario seems very holy to us. But to God, it was holy. Okay? And, and, and then when we look at like the Christmas story, okay, specifically the manger scene, on the surface, there is nothing about this that seems holy to us. But to God, it is. To God, it was holy. And I think the miracle that we often miss in both of these, these stories and maybe others is how the key principal characters in these stories are somehow able to notice that the place where they are standing is holy. When it was something that maybe most people would have easily ignored and, and passed off, it's like, yeah, there's no way God could be there. Moses and the Magi both have the same sort of epiphany and so here's the lesson I want you to learn. Again, if you're taking notes, that any place where you're willing to be fully present in the presence of God becomes holy ground. Any place. And maybe for you, it's like Moses, and it's at work, and God wants you just to, to learn to be fully present to his presence so that you can, you can begin to convert a very common, everyday place into a holy place where people can begin to see God through you. Like, like, what is this? This is just an everyday place. God couldn't be here. Like, what if it actually could be a holy place because you became fully present to the presence of God and people started to see God through your life? Maybe for some of you, it's like the Magi and you're, it's like when you're standing under a night sky and it's, man, this is a holy place, holy moment, or it's at home in your kitchen as you're sitting there and you're thinking about all that God has given you and the goodness of God in your life and you're thinking about your family and Maybe it's for you when you're in bed and you're still sort of half awake and you're just, you're just going through it and it becomes a very holy moment. And wherever this place is for you, I want you to know that Jesus came so that we could be close to him. No matter where we are in our life, no matter who we're with, no matter what we have done. In fact, you know, the story goes when Jesus eventually dies on the cross many, many years later, one of the most significant things that happens in that story is that the curtain of the temple in the Jewish temple that separated the presence of God from everyday people. You remember, it's torn in two from top to bottom. Remember that? And then we're told about this because the tearing of the curtain symbolizes that the presence of God is now accessible to everyone everywhere. It's not limited to a building. It's not in this specific place you have to travel to, but God is with us no matter who you are or where you are, you can find God. Which means this, if God's removed all the obstacles, then the only obstacle remaining in our relationship with God is our willingness to come to him. In other words, the only obstacle is us. He has removed every obstacle. And so I, I, just, I just wanna say a few things to you as I, as I start to close it down and um, I don't know what your life looks like this Christmas, you know. Um, for some people, it's the best time of year, and others, it just brings up all sorts, of, all sorts of disappointment and pain and hurt and all of that. And maybe you are in a season of feeling far from God. Maybe it feels like there's something between you and God, a rift. There's something off. You're not fully sure why. Maybe it was something you said or something you did. Maybe God didn't deliver on an expectation that you had of him, and that sort of splintered the relationship that you want to have with him. 
Or maybe maybe you, you're put off about an assumption that you've made about God based on something that you were taught, maybe growing up in church. Maybe there's certain experiences you had in church over the years that gave you these different sort of assumptions and, and you find out that they really have nothing to do with who God really is. It's just maybe how you see him to be and you're here kind of struggling with like who you were raised to see, see God as and, and maybe this whole new idea, a whole new picture of who he may actually be. Maybe it's a situation where you just haven't talked to God in a while. So you don't really know what to say. You don't know how to take things from this sort of surface level, you know, religiosity down to the intimately connected gut level, pouring your heart out to God connection that you feel like you're supposed to have. You're just not sure how. You know, there's something that has inspired me this year about the Christmas story that I think is communicated through the gift of frankincense. And that is this, again, if you're taking notes, that Jesus is as close as your willingness to call on him because you're always only a whisper away from a holy moment. That's it. It doesn't have to happen at church. It doesn't have to happen in a temple, in a holy building of some sort. You don't have to say all the right things. You don't have to memorize the right verses or the right prayers. You don't need the right incense to burn. Like, like you don't need another priest. You don't need another medicine man or a shaman. You don't need a magi. You don't need a spiritual leader of any kind in order to access God. That is the beauty of Christmas that we come together and celebrate. He has come and he came to do away with all the middlemen, the go-betweens, so that he could be like your direct line and access to God. And look at this, look at this thought. When the Magi gave the gift of frankincense, they were communicating that anyone looking for God should go to Jesus because he's the real priest, the only real go-between, not them. And I think they somehow instinctively knew and understood where they were so limited and where they came up short. And they had come to find the one who could go beyond their limits and actually connect people to the divine. You guys can go ahead and come on, come on up. I just wonder, you know, what obstacles are keeping you? What obstacles exist in your life that maybe are keeping you from approaching God with confidence? Because I think what the story of Christmas shows us is that Jesus wants to remove all of these obstacles. So whether it is a habit or maybe it's a paradigm of some sort or a past experience or you know, just, just uh, the sick feeling in your stomach when you think about the year that you've had. You know, what are the obstacles that keep you from God? Things you've said and done, regrets you've piled up or had to deal with throughout the last year. Let me, let me tell you, Christmas is a call to embrace the invitation of Jesus to bring you peace by eradicating the distance between you and him in a way that only he can. Do you hear that? Let me say that again. Christmas is a call. I got your eyes, right? You're looking here. Christmas is a call to embrace the invitation of Jesus to bring you peace by eradicating the distance between you and him in a way that only he can. Only he can bridge the gap. Only he can remove the obstacle. Because here's what, here, here's what you gotta understand, okay? And maybe this can help, help change and set the stage for your entire month, your entire Christmas season. This, this big thought that Christmas is first and foremost about closeness with God. That's what it is about. God with us. God has come, Right? I think it would be a shame to go through the entire Christmas season that is uniquely, I think, sort of designed and set up and decorated to help sort of facilitate this connection to God only for us to not engage. Man, I think it'd be a shame. A Christmas season of feeling distant from God or like something's off between you and him and just not being able to make things right. Like, what a shame, you know? Like, what a risk, I would say, to lean into all of the sacred aspects of Christmas and not encounter the sacred. 
Because the truth is that God is here right now. He's not far. He's here right now. You ever just stop to think about that? Like you may not see him, but God is here. He's in this place. His presence is here right now. This is a holy moment. He wants to have a conversation with you. Where you would open up your heart and you would let yourself feel. You'd let yourself cry and rely on the God who really does love you. This is a moment. This is a holy place, a holy moment. Not because of the drywall and the paint that we have here, but because of the people who are here, who all are here inhabiting the presence of God. We come here and it's like this combustible moment as we gather. You seek God and I seek God and you seek God and you seek God and it's like it just, it just brings his presence into this place. And I want you just to know that today, that it's a holy moment. And he wants to have a conversation with you. He wants to meet you. He wants to encounter you. He wants you to feel, know, and experience and understand his love in a way that maybe you never have, a way that other people seem to talk about in their own stories and testimonies, but you've never, ever really experienced that yourself. He wants to remove the obstacles. There doesn't need to be any other go-between. There doesn't need to be any other person to talk to God for you. You can do this yourself. It's the beauty of Christmas and the journey and the mission of Jesus here on earth to remove every obstacle and every go-between to be your direct line and access point to God Almighty. And so in what ways do you need to let God come a little bit closer? What obstacles have you maybe built up that have kept God out? And what needs to come down today to bring him in and bring him closer? Would you stand? Would you just bow your heads for a moment? Hmm. I want you just to take a moment here. Push out all distraction for a second. Let yourself just kind of slow your breathing down for a minute. Just focus on God. Focus on the gift of Jesus. Think about the implications of Christmas for you on a personal level. Who is this God? What is this love? You're here today and you would just say, hey, Pastor Jordan, there are some serious obstacles between me and God. Not exactly sure how they got there, but I know that they exist and it's time for them to come down. It's time for them to move out and go away. I need to have that reconnection with God. Can I just see your hand today? You know there's some obstacles. You know there's some challenges spiritually that you're feeling. Yeah, I mean, all over. That's okay. I'll give you another second here. I know, I know some of you are just thinking about it, not sure if you're ready to really remove the obstacles. That's all right. Can you at least acknowledge that there's some? There's some barriers, there's some things in your way Father, would you just now come? Would you come close in Jesus' name? I thank you, God, that you are not far off and distant and uninvolved and uncaring. I thank you that you are not a God who just sort of sits on your throne, uninvolved in our life, but that you come to us. You came 2,000 years ago. You put on flesh. You lived this human life yourself. You went through the struggles and the challenges of what it means to be human, and you went to that cross willingly to lay it down, to die for us, to give us new life, to give us hope, to walk amongst your people. And so, God, I pray right now for every person under the sound of my voice who just feels like there's a disconnect, who feels like there's an obstacle, like they know they should be closer to you, God, but they're not sure how, and they're not sure why there feels this, this, uh, this problem or this rift or this issue between you and them, God, would you just come close and may they feel, sense, know, and understand your love right now. May you overwhelm them with your love right now. 
May you overwhelm their emotions right now in Jesus' name. God, I pray that, that, that you would pour out so much love into them in this moment that they could not contain it. It would just feel like they're overflowing with love right now. And that's a picture I get for some of you in here right now. God is just pouring out and pouring out and pouring out his love. And just, just your response to this is just, is just open up your hands right before you and say, God, I receive. I receive it. I want it, God. I want your love. I want it. I want it. I want everything you have for me. Just begin to receive from him. Remove every obstacle, oh God. Tear down every stronghold, every issue that stands in the way between us and you, every spirit of unbelief, every spirit of doubt, every spirit of heaviness. I speak to those spirits right now, and we send them to the cross. I thank you that your blood, oh Jesus, was enough to overcome every single assignment and attack from the enemy. And I declare freedom and wholeness and life in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Every burden must go. Every fear we send to the foot of the cross. All the guilt and all the shame, I thank you, God, that you're enough to handle that too. May you come close, oh God. May you come close, oh God. May we not be satisfied with a belief in God that is merely intellectual. How can that even last and produce any kind of good fruit? But may there be such a hunger in us, oh God, to know you, to experience you, to talk to you, to feel your presence and know that you're at work in our life. And we give you thanks today. In Jesus' name.